just over a year ago in May 2022, the McAllister Review of Children's Social Care in England, commissioned by the UK government, was published, setting out recommendations for change. This is happening in the context of increasingly individualised, risk-averse, family-blaming narratives around children's service provision in the UK and many countries, which has allowed for more coercive and adversarial practices. Today on the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Robin Sen, lecturer in social work at the University of Edinburgh and a qualified social worker, and Chris Junker, a social worker and lecturer in social work and social and community studies at Leeds Beckett University. Their new book, The Future of Children's Care, explores children's services in the UK from a range of perspectives and critically considers the impact of the McAllister Review. Hi, Robin and Christian. Morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's a pleasure. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, So to start us off, um, this is a huge area, obviously, but can you give us a brief overview of some of the key issues, inequalities and harms in children's care at the moment that need to be addressed? Yeah, so if I can start us off on that one. So I think as most listeners will be aware, but in case not that, I mean, the key traditional areas of child abuse are around physical abuse, sexual abuse and neglect. Um, neglect being a, the, the biggest category um, that the children are classified as experiencing, but also a controversial one. So it, it's very widespread category that includes Concerns about the quality of care provided children for for a number of reasons, but also has some questions about it because of its connections with familial poverty and parents' struggles and the way that there's an intersection often between those two things. Um, So some questions about how we frame and respond to neglect um, and how we support families to care for their children. Um, rather than responding um, in a punitive or investigative way. So that's one of the issues that's there at the moment for the system is uh, evidence and concerns that the system is sometimes overly investigative. So a large number of families being referred to children's social care, uh, a number then being uh, investigated through formal child protection procedures after which only a small number um, are provided with with a service after that. So there's some concern about families being put through that process without then receiving an additional service. There may be some arguments around the fact that they've been investigating it and they've had advice provided and there's been an interaction with social workers may not necessarily be um, as negative as it may seem. So there may be a, a kind of um, an advice giving um, process or a linking families into other services. But equally, there are lots of concerns that this process alienates parents. It's very intrusive, um, that parents and families generally don't find it a helpful process to go through. And it's a very stressful one. So the concerns, if you like, about the number of families uh, that are referred and the process that they then go through and whether this is, is a helpful one. There's been important research led by Paul Bywaters and a team of researchers in the UK as well that uh, re-emphasised what I think we already sensed and already thought, but has uh, provided um, a range of really important data showing that um, families who are poor are far more likely to be investigated by child protection services and children are far more, more likely to come into care if they're from um, poorer families than from better better off families and, and that's a real issue so there's a concern about 
does a child protection system as, as we know it, we know that there are, are genuine concerns around child neglect and child abuse out there that need responded to. But is the system actually helping those issues or is it being caught up in um, a process of investigating a large number of families in order to try and identify those that need more intense support and at the, the extreme need um, need responses that, that remove children from, from their family networks, at least for a, for a period of time, because the risks are too severe. The other thing just to mention is, there's been increasing focus on the risk to children outside their family networks. So this has come through child sexual exploitation, uh, criminal exploitation and concerns about those things in particular, but also a range of other things that happen outside the family home and is particularly being given focus by a, a, um, a method of working called contextual safeguarding that's associated with, with Carleen Fermin's work in, in particular. Um, and that looks um, at those harms that, that happen outside the family home, but also has an emphasis on... Um, looking at families and young people in particular as active participants and seeing them as um, partners in responding to those risks rather than if you like passive recipients of of an intervention from a service so those things are are there in the system um, at the moment and I think the biggest challenge is um, that we have a system that's being chronically underfunded um, arguably for a long, long time, but certainly since austerity and certainly in terms of those uh, family support um, parts of the si system um, have been really, really poorly um, uh, financed over the last decade. According to some um, estimates, there's been 70% cuts in those services, youth services, family support services. Uh, and that means we, we currently have issues alongside with cost of living crisis, with families really struggling, um, not having the support that they they need to meet their, their children's needs, but a system that's arguably been set up to investigate rather than, than support. That's a crucial difference, isn't it? So yeah. given all this, on the surface of it, it seems like a really positive thing that the government's commissioned this review into children's care. But what are some of the issues with the review that we need to be aware of, Christian? Yeah, I can speak to that one. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many, um, but I'm going to focus on some key, some key concerns. One of which is the uh, from the outset there was concerns about the profile, experience, expertise, and characteristics of the chosen chair of the care review, Josh McAllister. Now, what I'm not going to do here is go into the extensive analysis critical analysis of his networks, his appointments at the time of the review, personal and professional connections that propel McAllister, because um, that's been done better elsewhere by the likes of Joan Hanley and those whose work Joe builds on. But I want to focus here a little bit on um, his connection to a global consultancy called Boston Consultant Group. And I know people will roll their eyes about this when I mention it, because I talk about this a lot and have talked about it for quite some years. Um, Boston Consultant Group were instrumental in setting up Frontline, the social work, child protection, fast track training scheme that, right. that, that Josh McAllister is famous for having set up, right? Yeah. Um, so they were a founding partner. They gave McAllister the resources and the support to set that up from the outset, right? And if you want, and they continue to provide 
uh, pro bono support to frontline. Uh, and that's in, that pro bono support has increased uh, over the years in terms of monetary value. And actually, interesting, in the last year, that pro bono support from Boston Consultant Group saw about a 900% increase in monetary value, according to the last financial report of Frontline. So that shows you the influence that this global management consultancy, which has a turnover somewhere, well, the last time I looked, it was somewhere in the region of eight or $9 billion a year, a massively powerful influential, globally connected um, uh, global management consultancy, intimately intertwined with not only social work, but with the government's current agenda for children's services, okay? So I think that's worth thinking about deeply and what the implications of that are. And if you want to know about Boston Consultant Group and some of the ethical issues around it, have a look at the Karolinska hospital scandal in Sweden. Have a look at the Luanda leaks. Have a look at the Saudi Neon project. So that is something that should be thought about because we're talking about social work here. And to have an organization that's in any way embroiled in anything like that, so close to social work, is deeply, deeply troubling. And yet we don't talk about it, right? And we need to talk about these things because it's yeah. important. It's very important. It's to do with ethics, it's to do with values. And without ethics and values, the very basis of social work evaporates, right? Yeah. These are very, very important issues. More recently, we've had BCG, Boston Consultant Group, involved in the track and trace system. They charged over 10 million pounds for 40 people to work on this virus test and trace program over the course of just four months. That's about 6,000 pounds a day, uh, something like that, or six, yeah. Um, now, not only did that test and trace program not work, but that was public money, right? Is there any contrition or restoration from Boston Consultant Group on that? No. Is this the sort of leadership we want modelled in our social work and social care systems? No. Right. So there's some fundamental issues to do with the chair of the care review having been instrumental in bringing this organisation, this global management consultancy, very closely and intimately connected to English social work. That is a big problem in my view. I think one of the, the main things are the gaps in the review um, yeah. that are there. So uh, this was pitched as a once in a generation review. Ministers used uh, the phrase, McAllister used the phrase repeatedly. So it's this idea it was going to be transformative and, and this, uh, uh, this opportunity that we wouldn't get again for a substantial number of, of years. And that the idea when it was initially vaunted in, in the Tory manifesto in I think 2019 it would have been was it suggested it was going to be a review of the care system like they'd had in Scotland and a very well received review in Scotland in terms of the process and the way that that engaged both people who use services and provided services and and had uh, support across the the political spectrum so the idea was it was suggested that it was going to be a similar review then when they announced it had broadened to be a review of all children's services and both the government and the chair said this is so we can have a holistic review and look at the whole system there are advantages to it there was a lot of um uh pushback about that at the time so not only was it suddenly expanded to this huge area um that the review was looking at but it was then going to be within within a year so you had a, a, a review in Scotland of the care system alone in a smaller country that was done over three years. Right. Here we have a review of the whole of children's services in a year. And it seems very clear that what part of what happened is that there were people in government and around government that really wanted to review 
um, if you like, child and family social work and children's services rather than the care system. And so one of the, 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 the major gaps in the review is it has very, very little to say about residential childcare. And one of our chapter authors, John Radu, talks about this as someone who's been in residential childcare himself and has, has practiced in residential childcare that we have very little to say about it. And implicitly, the message is we don't want residential childcare. Yeah, if we go back to the debates in, in the 1990s, when there were some moves from some local authorities to do away with residential childcare, they found they couldn't do without it. So some children have repeat um, foster placement breakdowns, do not want to be within a family for various reasons because of what's happened to them in the past. Um, and in other cases, children, young people's needs mean that it's very hard for them to care within a family setting, at least for a period of time. So this idea that we can simply do away with residential childcare doesn't sit well with the historical record, but there was no explicit discussion of, around this in the review, just the sidelining of residential childcare in the review uh, final paperwork and, it, and, and a lack of attention to it in any of the, the, the 80 odd recommendations. Similarly, we have a strange uh, absence of focus on adoption, which is a strange one in a different way, because when the Tory party regained power in that first Cameron government from 2010 to 15 or 16, I think it was 15, um, they had a massive focus under Michael Gove on adoption and adoption was presented almost as being the solution to a lot of problems of children in care, particularly younger children, place them in adoptive families, this will resolve um, their issues and there were some arguments there from senior advisors that were even removing children from neglectful quote neglectful families earlier on so this huge focus that was criticized but was a huge part of that government's um, early early policy and now we have in, in the McAllister review barely a word on it even though in in the initial terms of reference it did mention adoption so there's a strange absence on that and the third gap that I would identify is around race and asylum, and in particularly the treatment of unaccompanied asylum-seeking minors. And that's a massive gap, not to mention, particularly given the hostile environment, particularly given the setting up of a home office team to age assess um, asylum-seeking young people who are arriving in the country without the care of parents or carers and in a very, very vulnerable situation if they're denied um, their, their rights as looked after children. So really kind of crucial issue. And we know what the, the wider environment is at the moment in terms of government discourse and government policy around immigration and around claiming asylum in the country. And the, the review purposely draws a line around this and says, um, this isn't this isn't within our remit within in this review. But obviously it's a huge thing um, for, for a once in a generation review be failing to say anything anything about so there's lots of issues that could be raised and thanks for that robin you've really ably set out some of the things i was i was going to say myself but you've fleshed those things out really well better than i could so i appreciate that thanks very much i won't go on to list those other things that i was going to mention jess but what i will say is that it's really noteworthy that josh McAllister has recently been selected as the candidate the Labour candidate to stand for MP for the Copeland constituency in what appears to be a very, very problematic uh, and troubled process, such that people close to the situation are asserting that the Starmer leadership have effectively installed McAllister as the candidate in that area, um, which raises a really troubling question about 
if you look at McAllister's trajectory um, from his time as a, as, a, as, a, as a Teach First alumnus, Teach First is the kind of template for frontline, yeah? yeah? So there's these yeah, fast yeah. track schemes. So, and his trajectory from then through um, the IPPR into influential positions, uh, influence and policy from the very outset of his, of his career, actually, or certainly very early on. So the question is, and this is a really troubling question, was this review merely a stop on the way to the ultimate destination for McAllister? And I think that Labour should give Party. us... Yeah, and that should give it, and in any future government, that should give us pause for thought about democracy and how democracy works. So these are big issues. And this is why social work is so fascinating, you see, because they do, it does these, 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 these important social issues. Um, when you unpick them, they actually speak to the wider concerns in society in a very, very um, poignant way. Yeah, it's revealing. Yes. Um, Christian, are there any aspects of the review that you think are going in the right direction? So I'd like to say at this point, yes. Um, and from the outset, uh, experts by experience, lived experience, was foregrounded by McAllister and by the review. Right. Uh, unlike previous reviews, such as Monroe, which focused on, which is a very well-regarded review, by the way, and has lots of great things to say, but it very much focused on practitioners, managers, policy leaders' views. So McAllister, clearly taking his cue from the Duncan Review in Scotland, which preceded it, set out from the start saying that experts by experience, to use the, the, the parlance, uh, were to be an integral part of this review, which is really noteworthy in a positive way. So let's say that, yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. However, the handling of the appointment of experts by experience to the review was very, very problematic and led to great division and hurt within the care experience community who had come together previously over such really fantastic initiatives, such as the Care Experience Conference in 2019, which brought care experience people together to discuss and debate in solidarity what a fairer society and a better care system would look like for them. And in turn, that led to something called the Our Care, Our Say document in 2021, which set out key messages that, key, that care experience people wanted heard in the care review, which had been promised in the Tory manifesto of 2019. However, the division caused by the handling of the appointment of experts by experience um, in the, the, the McAllister review is palpable, persistent, and really, really sad and painful to observe. So what, what, what's the, with, what was the problem with the way that they were brought in? It invited applications from care experienced people. Okay. Um, so it was an open call for applications. And the way that they were selected, uh, it basically led to a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of hope invested in this review. Um, and okay. a lot of people, a lot of people who applied to it felt like certain, and I'm not saying whether I agree with this or not, but I'm just taking the message. There was a feeling from some people that certain experts by experience were favored in that selection process, right? right? People who okay. might be more friendly towards what we might notionally call McAllisterism, okay? I'm not okay. giving an opinion on that here, yeah. right? That's just one strand of the issue. Notwithstanding the wider hurt and disappointment of really wanting to be heard, mm. making an application and then hearing nothing back or getting a perfunctory rejection um, from the review, yes? yes? Because these are people with real stake in this, yeah? yeah. Um, so it's really important. It's not like me as a professional being disappointed that I didn't get to bang on about something I care about. These are people that have experiences that really wanted those experiences to influence the future of children's care in this country. And they were 
notionally given that opportunity and then it was taken away from them by a really problematic process. Okay, in terms of recommendations, what's to like about the review? I guess the idea of, and for me, and Robin may disagree, for me, integrated multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary family help. I come from an adult's perspective, so I can't necessarily speak to um, practice in a children's context, but this idea of multidisciplinary family help to provide targeted support to a complex adaptive system such as a family um, is, is really appealing to me, right? Yeah. But the review also recommended separating this out from child protection as if these are discrete disciplines. And that to me seems wrong-headed. Um, or this, this passing out of child protection as a kind of technical discipline as opposed to social work as a social justice oriented one is a long-standing predilection certainly of the current chief social worker for children and families and really the, the current reform agenda in the, that's been ongoing um, for the past 13 years or so, certainly the past 10. Um, family help is protective of children. So these things exist on a continuum and support and if needed intervention should be stepped up and stepped down as needed. So these things shouldn't be separated out in my view. Some people may argue to the contrary about that. Um, but the idea that family help should should the idea that should family help fail, families are then pitched headlong from that supportive um, environment into what are often high, highly distressing, antagonistic adversarial legal processes under mm. the ambit of child protection yeah. seems to me pretty hard line, right? Yeah. Um, equally, it suggests that family help is in some way just cosy chats with cups of teas type thing, which it might be, and great if it is. But you surely cannot preclude difficult conversations, relationally rocky territory, and you know bold, if necessary, interventions at that stage e either, right? Yeah. Um, another good thing is the ambitions for care experience people that comes out of the review. It's really positive to see care experience people having been central to the review, however problematically, having their too often devastatingly poor experiences following leaving care, having those experiences acknowledged and addressed within the review. That's really great. And another thing that appeals to me is another hobby horse of mine, um, reducing the reliance on agency staff. That's a good recognition in the review. But as with the lip service, the review pays to profit in residential care. At bottom, the recommendation appears aimed at maintaining marketized provision rather than tackling like the core philosophical and practical question of what impact does the profit motive have on these systems? Businesses are built on the principles of profit and growth. Those are the overriding impulses, irrespective of any ethical values a business may have. So at a very foundational level, we have to admit that private businesses will seek to foster and maintain conditions favorable to their profit and growth. And no private business is ever going to act against its own interests. And those interests can and do come into conflict with the best interests of vulnerable people, in this case, children. That question needs to be tackled. The review did tackle it. So it's, in my view, it's morally abominable to extract profit from human suffering. And I've never heard a convincing argument to the contrary. I have heard lots of mealy mouth what about re about the state also doing untold damage to people and communities. And that is very much the case, yes. But at least the state is subject to at least some vestigial checks and balances via notional democratic processes, which, by the way, need to be strengthened, not weakened as they are being, including by McAllister and the networks that propel him and others. It's a little bit of a polemic there, Jess, but... We'll no, it's very eloquently put, yeah. yeah. If I can just come in, um, so agree with, with Christian on, on the positives. I mean, I think the big... It's hard because this is a final document. It's a really uneven document. So you read it and you think, oh, I can agree with that. And then the next part doesn't develop it or there's a next part you disagree with or there's a part you agree with and you think, oh, well, that'll lead to that recommendation. It's not there. So it's just a really uneven document that, that, that feels 
like the chair was torn between trying to provide too many horses. But in terms of what's positive there, I think it is, it's not anything that's new to those that have been around the children's services system, but nonetheless, there is value with the review articulating it, which is that the system is insufficiently help, helpful to families. We have an issue with rising numbers of children coming into care, and we need to do something about that in terms of making the system more family friendly and more family supportive. So I think that the review states that, states it clearly, um, is its, its chief asset, I think. Within that, there are still difficulties. So the review um, seems to go to what I think are extreme lengths to avoid uh, pinning any of the blame of, on that, on austerity cuts enacted under um, Tory governments. And that's probably because, it, it, you know, the chair's view is I need to persuade these conservative ministers. Therefore, I'm not going to criticise policies that their, their party and their prior governments are associated with. Sorry, Robin, also worth noting that um, the chair was contractually obliged not to embarrass the government, which seems to be to be a very preemptive stymie of any criticism of austerity or government policy that had led to the issues in the first place. Sorry to interject there. Yeah. So just another of the contractual obligations that, that Josh McAllister signed up to is that any recommendations had to be uh, cost neutral over time. And I think that's an issue. So it does raise the, the the lack of support for families, the lack of funding in the system. And it does suggest, as Christian said, support through family help hubs uh, and, and recommends investment in them. I think there are issues with the, the exact detail of the proposals for family hubs. I won't go into those now. It'll take us off, off, off on a tangent. But just to stick on the funding issue. So McAllister asked for 2.6 billion in family support hubs. The government has promised only 200 million. And one of the frustrating things for those of us um, that have looked at the review in detail is this is presented as if we got the 2.6 billion over five years, then this would really address the problem. This is still a massive shortfall if you look at the significance of funding needed. So if we go back to Sure Start, which lots of people admire that um, the new Labour government's brought in and was criticised in various ways, but the longer term research shows had a real impact on children's well-being and those children as they grew up into uh, young people and then grew up in, into adults on, on their psychological and their physical well-being and their quality of life. Um, there was a government study that, that looked at, at the funding of this back in 2009-10 and showed that for a child going from zero to four, the access sure start, it cost in, in 2009-10 terms about £5,000 per child. So if we say £6,000 is a conservative estimate of what that is in, in 2023 figures. And if we say that there's around four million children uh, living in poverty in the country at the moment, we're looking at an investment of 24 billion. Now, not all of those 4 million children might access the service. They might all benefit from, from it, but they might not all access. But that's the scale, 10 times what was recommended by, by um, the, McAllister in, in the care review himself, of which he only got a very, very small amount promised by government. But even if we got that promised um, allocation, the 2.6, Billion, it's still a relative drop in the ocean compared to the investments under prior new Labour governments that did make a difference. One of the issues that's also connected to the uh, condition that I mentioned about cost neutrality 
is that McAllister goes to extraordinary lengths, I think, to try and justify through what I think are very questionable calculations that if you make this investment, you later save money. Now, there's, there's an underlying truth there that if we can invest in family support and stop uh, the need for children to go into the care system, it's better for families, it's better for children. It costs less money. That's true. But to actually claim that any investment that there is is going to be recouped because children won't be going, going to a care, uh, going into care. And this is some kind of um, surefire um, guarantee that we can give is just unrealistic. We need to be saying if we want proper care for children and young people in the country and we want children, and young people living in families who are struggling due to poverty, due to the cost of living crisis, due to the uh, entrenched uh, effects of austerity and due to issues that are there within their family networks and outside. And if we want that, we need to invest in it. Um, there's no two ways about it. We need to invest seriously in it and we need to talk about the economic changes, whether that be tax rises on, on the highest earners or wealth taxes or other ways of funding the system, but there's no shortcut way that we suddenly put 2.6 billion in, and then you get tens of thousands of children not coming into the care system, being happily maintained in, in, in their families. It just doesn't work that easily. So I think the identification of the problem is good, the key problem in the, in the system, uh, and there's a value to that being said but there isn't sufficient follow through on that and a sufficient honesty about the scale of resources and the scale of, of, of effort that's going to be needed to turn, turn the system around. It's really interesting listening to you talk about it in detail, having studied it in detail, because I think these reviews in all areas kind of come and go, don't they? And we're almost accustomed to them being disappointing and inadequate Mm. And they come and the reports get produced and we're like, oh, well, that's clearly far, far, far away from what we need. And then, yeah, there's something very like uncomfortable with it. Not only is it not comprehensive, even mm. the recommendations are a million miles away from anything that's actually going to make a difference. Yeah. So that, I, sorry, Rob. Go on, Chris. Well, I'll just say quickly that one of the questions that did come for me, I, I talked to some colleagues in New Zealand and, and read um, a PhD thesis, which, which was based in Australia, but it made the argument that reviews actually make the system worse. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm completely convinced by all of it, but having had the experience of the McAllister Review, for which there were such high hopes... Uh, and the argument is that even if you get good review recommendations, and as you've heard, we've got various criticisms of some of them, but not all. But even when you get that, you get this technology, this managerial technology around it that then creates a new bureaucracy. And one of the, the kind of go to arguments for um, McAllister and people around McAllister is that it's too much bureaucracy in, in children's services. Hmm. failing to define what they meant by bureaucracy and then hmm. posing some far-reaching cuts to regulations and law that would undermine children's rights and sometimes families' rights, which a number of us were very, very opposed to. But nonetheless, the technology of the review and the, the, uh, um, the bodies around it and the implementation bodies themselves create a new bureaucracy, new bureaucracy that's never acknowledged and a managerial one that tends to be quite top down, top heavy and doesn't engage with families on the ground. And it doesn't engage with the practitioners on the ground who are the people that are going to be needing to enact these changes. 
these reviews tend to be quite instrumental rather than kind of principles or principle or values based. So, and that leads to the question. So what Robin's talked about there, that kind of top down, technicized, managerial, I mean, it's stuff that's thought about by people who live in the rarefied atmosphere of corporate managerialism, right? So mm. they haven't necessarily got the lens that's needed to think about things from the bottom up. And I wonder if they properly attended to the foundations, right? So what we end up with is very instrumental um, reviews and recommendations, right? As we have yeah. with the, the Calster review. So foundationally, for me, I would like to see more participative policymaking. Now, it's not for me as a professional academic with little personal stake in this to say what that should look like. It's for me to be ally, an ally to those people and to support that, right? Except to say that the more diverse, less heard voices you bring in, um, the more difficult conversations you have, the more you listen properly and attentively to those difficult messages, the better, right? Yeah. So that's about being better at listening to criticism. Um, and that's a message to social workers and social work leaders from me. <laughs> Um, and the other thing is around it's about human things, right? Accountability, transparency, humanness. These things seem quite lacking the higher up the chain you go, right? I'm not saying these people lack humanity. What I'm saying is there's something happens to roles that 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 kind of dehumanize. Um, Everything gets chain. a bit abstract, doesn't it, and disconnected yeah. from yeah. lived and, lives. And it becomes about so they it becomes about things other than that right there's other thing other stakes come into it um reputations institutional organizational reputations right um so we have a very corporate approach to leadership in social support systems which doesn't model at all the sort of authentically human relationally adept work of social workers family support workers care workers and so on you know the, the people that are doing the stuff on mm -hmm. the ground that matters right and there seems to me a horror of admitting getting things wrong at that level right um but what better way to promote transparency and accountability and to say that you're listening and willing to change tack based on new understandings rather than plowing ahead with failed policy agendas than to admit you're human and fallible mm. and moreover not be not afraid to show it and in doing so therefore showing that you value and uphold those qualities in other people so you're immediately being more relational and more connected to the people on the ground that and you're matter, prepared to right? learn as well you're and, prepared yeah. to learn and you know you're being more you were sharing in our humanity right that stuff doesn't get talked about it's anathema to policy right yeah so yes we need less corporate leadership mumbo jumbo we need fewer men in suits with permagrins and more honestly and authentically fallible people involved in being allies to lived experience policymakers. those people still need to be highly capable please mm -hmm. yes um, but yes, more humans. <laughs> I've no time for dishonest folk in this of all areas, and they need to be called out at every turn. And that's the kind of thing that's going to lead us to better solutions um, for these issues in children's care, perhaps rather than the report that's been produced. Robin, did you have anything else to say on that? Just into, I mean, I think very much in agreement about the the process, and, and I don't think you can dis disentangle the process from the end as well. I will will say that I think. The McAllister Review did seek to engage families and, and took on board families' frustrations with the system, but I felt that it tried to do so in a sense as a cudgel to beat the system with and to beat social workers with. So it was like families have these poor experiences, the system and social workers are at fault, rather than saying, you know, the system 
is problematic. What elements of those systems are, are problematic? It isn't individual social workers who are doing a very, very difficult job and particularly now are overstretched, there's huge vacancies. They work within a system that's been underfunded um, and equally families are recipients of a system that's been underfunded and been set up in a way, maybe not intentionally, but it's been, been uh, delivered in a way that is not supportive for far too many families and then far too many children, young people, if and when they do come in into the care system. And I think setting up that as an opposition was a real, real unfortunate dynamic that McAllister Review set up earlier on, as well as others that Christian has talked about. I do want to mention one specific issue, and I don't have a, a clear solution to it other than I think the review's solution is inadequate. And that's around care placements and private provisions. So we have an issue both in foster placements and residential childcare about private companies now providing uh, the vast majority of residential child care placements and a very substantial number of foster care placements. And increasingly, the companies doing so are owned by big private equity firms whose purpose is to make money. And profits have been going up and prices have been going up, not for every provider, but across the board generally. And um, there was already a Commission and Markets uh, Authority investigation that was pending, we, we understand, although McAllister did kind of present it as something that, that was a as a result of his intervention. But leaving that issue aside over who actually called for it, it did report and it said, look, profits are greater than we would expect. There needs to be some intervention in the market. But that started from a premise that there is and should be a market by, by its name, the Competition Markets Authority looks at markets and how they should function better. The review never took the step back and said, these are children and young people in the care of the state who the state has removed for because their, their needs were not being met in their families for, for complex reasons. And we are agreeing through um, supporting the CMA analysis that there should be a market in the provision of care for them. Now, there may be an argument for that. Maybe sometimes private providers provide better quality of care. Some of those who, who work for private providers argue so. But let's have a look at that. And, and then the criteria become very, very clear that if you have a private provider making profits, then the quality of care that they provide must be very distinctly better quality. And if it's not, we've got a serious problem. In Wales, they have declared that they will move to a non-profit model. That's caused a lot of consternation, particularly amongst those who provide um, private provision and those that represent those who do. Um, I haven't heard any alternatives. I've heard criticism of the speed of Wales doing that without contingency plans. I've heard criticism of McAllister's solution about regional care cooperatives, which seem quite well grounded. But I haven't heard any other solutions coming from those big private providers or those who represent them as the alternative solutions. But I'm very clear that McAllister's solution, which was a regional care cooperatives and a one-off windfall tax, which seems to be a hark back to um, some of the policies that are there around energy companies and harking back to, to New Labour and Gordon Brown and that initial win, windfall tax on back, banks, is a perfectly inadequate response to the scale of the problem once again. 
but also it's quite problematic in another way in that it risks entrenching profit making as a legitimate area of concern. If we windfall tax someone, we're saying, look, you're just making too much profit in this area. So therefore, we're taking we're top slicing a bit of your profit, but ca carry on. What you're doing is fundamentally OK. And the review had a responsibility which it dodged, which was to open up this question. Is it OK for private providers to make multimillion profits from providing care to children and young people in the care system. And let's have a discussion around that. And if we're saying, yes, well, what are the parameters? What are the criteria for that? And it completely evaded its responsibility around those things. At least ask the question, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, there was one kind of want to focus down a little bit on something that I was particularly interested in in the book, um, which was the discussion of the importance of dissent. So we've said already that the review involved a range of different people with expertise in children's services, but the book explains how, um, in fact, the reports, and we've talked about it a little bit here, the report gets produced within these closed loops and particular narratives. Um, can you explain this and why dissent matters? Yes. Um, so... You posited there, Jess, um, at least ask the question, which is a really nice segue into this topic, right? So if you'll indulge me getting into the theoretical basis of dissent for a moment, um, we'll hopefully get to some understanding about its importance. From Paulo Ferreira's concept of critical pedagogy, Margaret Ledwith coined the phrase critical dissent dialogue. And that means engaging and questioning lived reality in order to understand the contradictions that are taken for granted, right? This is powerful stuff. I recommend all social work students go and read Ledwith and before her Frere, right, in order to give their spirits a shot of inspiration for going forward into a, into a career in which they'll need to stand up for people who've got less power, right? Um, so for Ledwith, becoming critical involves understanding how power discriminates and acting together to change the source of that power. Now, that's a pretty fund foundational concern for social work, this idea of challenging power collectively. Key components of dissent are being critical. That's tied to the understanding of how power operates in society and actively working in concert with others to challenge and shift power. And the function of dissent at its most basic level therefore involves questioning and disrupting the status quo that maintains and advances unequal and unjust power imbalances in society, right? So if democracy is a process through which the expression of different interests and voices is enabled and legitimized, then dissent should be viewed as a vital and valuable component of a healthy functioning democracy. Now, if you mention dissent to most people in, in social work, in policy, um, they'll just look at, you, look at you like you've got two heads, to, to use a phrase that's commonly in, uh, in usage in the Northeast, right? It's not on the table. It's out of place, this idea of dissent in the contemporary context. The point I want to make is we don't do this this dissenting act, by which I mean having this conversation, this questioning of things, having this conversation, publishing this book. We don't do it because we want to, right? We do it because we have to. There could be no question that doing so is a valuable and collective act, regardless of whether you agree with the contents of what we're saying or not, right? This is about the funda a fundamental component of democracy. This is how important it is. And that, this is why it's an important um, part of what we do in order to ask questions about these top-down impositional initiatives and agendas uh, that are currently in training in children's services. Thank you. I need to wrap up now. 
so we've discussed the positives, the positives and negatives that might emerge as a result of the review. Were there many positives? Um, I don't know. And the different ways we could think about things in order to create change. So given the evidence in your book, what do you think the future of children's care in the UK will look like as we go further into the 2020s? I think it's hard to know what it will look like and what it should look like. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that that's sometimes there is about children's rights and children's own childhoods. And I think uh, when we look at countries that do well in terms of well-being um, surveys around childhood, they tend to be ones where um, there's more acceptance of children as co-producers of their own childhoods, as co-constructors of values um, and of childhoods. And investment in children, young people in and of themselves, rather than seeing them as being future productive adults and, and mini adults. So I think moving towards that idea is really important. How we get there and whether we will get there is, is a big, big question because we need to invest money uh, and we also need to, um, I think, have a, a different mindset around childhood and young people. So I think um, still children and young people are still often seen as a threat or if not an object rather than active agents um, of, of their own care. And yes, children are a governed group. Yes, we do regulate what children and young people do for very understandable and very uh, well work through reasons about their, their age and lesser development and lesser experience. But I think we need to take their views more seriously, engage with them. And I think it links to, to Christian's ideas of, of dissent. And I'll approach it from a slightly different angle in, in the, what we've seen in the McAllister Review, we've seen in government policy in the Department for Education, is a lack of willingness to engage with dissenting views. And you've seen sometimes government recently refusing to share platforms or allow people to speak on platforms at government events if they've criticised uh, the government. And I think we can link that to children and childhood. We're not saying that, you know, whatever children want or whatever children say is the final word, but it's important to engage with what they want for themselves and their view seriously. And there are huge challenges facing us socially um, around the environment, for one thing, but around economic inequality. And children, young people will have things to say about those things, as well as their own particular trajectories and childhoods. And we need to be seriously engaging with them and valuing their perspectives on it, rather than seeing them as the objects for solutions which adults decide for themselves around a table and then try and impose on them. Christian? So, so my hope is that we see some of these things that Robin has talked about come to fruition. The idea that children's uh, wishes and feelings, um, their views are central to policy. That also people with experience of the care system are involved in participatory policy making more. There's less top downism, more community based kind of emergent policy initiatives um, uh, coming from kind of grassroots stuff, you know, just listening to the people and making what the people want to happen, happen, right? Which seems to me the function of a, a healthy functioning state, right? Democratic state. So just going back to dissent, what I fear though is that um, without dissenting, 
uh, democracy. Uh, societies will tend to um, default to uh, totalitarianism, if not uh, if not totalitarianism, certainly authoritarianism. Now, I've been working with colleagues in education. The, the, the reform agenda in education and children's social care is very intertwined. It's all to do with the DFE. It's very much involved in the same kind of networks and stuff. And they, some of those people uh, in education, some of, some of our colleagues in education who are similarly inclined to criticality would agree that um, what we're seeing is the hand of an authoritarian state at play in this policy area, right? Uh, imposing their values around how society should be, shaping childhood along lines of their own um, ideology and what and what and what um, you know how best to um, commodify and monetize childhood, right? Um, that's my fear, right? That's that's uh, that my fear as we go further into the 2020s. That's what the future of children's rights will look like in the UK. My hope is that it goes completely the other way and it becomes more egalitarian and principles based, touching on many of the things we've already discussed in the podcast. Thank you. That was a fascinating discussion and quite an energizing discussion think as well um good thanks for speaking to me robin and christian thank you thank you for having us it's been great really really appreciate the opportunity to to talk about these things thank you yeah it's important um it is the book the future of children's care critical perspectives on children's services reform is edited by robin sen and christian kerr and is available on the policy press website um, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk there is also, Robin and Christian are also producing a podcast um, about the book based on chapters from the book. Um, if you search for The Future of Children's Care on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts, you'll be able to find it there. Thank you very much.